I know what the main thing is. The home base, the foundation of everything is my podcast. Everything that I've gotten to do is because of that. Welcome to Creative Elements, a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Creative Elements. It's hard to believe that we've passed 60 episodes of this show already. So a big thanks goes to you for continuing to listen, for sharing the show and helping it reach new listeners each and every week. And a special shout out to Caliente235 who wrote a review on Apple Podcasts titled, I love this show so much. They wrote, quote, Jay Klaus is that weird combination of delightful and inquisitive and under the radar brilliant that you want in a podcast host. Editing is on point. Commentary is insightful. Guests are great. One of my all-time favorites, end quote. I've never been called brilliant before, so thank you, Caliente235. If you haven't left a rating or review for Creative Elements on Apple Podcasts, please consider doing so. We are just below 200 five-star ratings, and you can make a difference. I may even read it here on this show. Well, speaking of getting listeners engaged in your podcast, today I'm speaking with a friend of mine named Ryan Hawk, and we met at a live recording of his podcast, The Learning Leader Show. On The Learning Leader Show, Ryan hosts deep conversations with the world's most thoughtful leaders to share their life stories and leadership wisdom. He speaks with CEOs, special force operators, entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, professional athletes, and more. And it was January 2020 when he interviewed Jenny Britton-Bauer, the creator of Jenny's Splendid Ice Creams, live here in Columbus, Ohio. Thank you. Thanks, man. Thank you. So welcome to a live edition of the Learning Leader Show. I am so grateful that you've chosen to invest your time with us uh, I would say I feel extremely lucky in the fact of who our guest is tonight. Jenny and I actually were talking yesterday on the phone, and to hear uh, her excitement and the stories, I, I had to stop her and say, we should just, we got to get off the phone because you're too good. In some ways, January 2020 seems like a lifetime ago. It was probably one of the last live events that I attended before the pandemic. But I remember it clearly because Ryan sent me a personal invitation to this event. Ryan is a really well-known and well-respected podcaster, and so I was honestly surprised and flattered to get this type of personal invitation. And I had missed a previous live recording that he did here with James Clear, so I made it a priority to get to this one. The event doubled as a launch event for his book, Welcome to Management. In the book, Ryan provides practical, actionable advice to help new managers build and lead teams in the face of daunting, unanticipated challenges. He presents a three-part framework outlining best practices distilled from interviews with more than 300 of the most forward-thinking leaders in the world, as well as his own professional experience transitioning from individual producer to new leader. Ryan has built quite a name for himself in the world of leadership development. Not only does he have the podcast and the book, but he's a keynote speaker as well. When I deliver a keynote speech, I have three primary goals. 
First is to educate, to share experiences so that you learn something new. To be entertaining, fun, enlightening by sharing great stories. Most importantly, I hope it inspires you to act, to make a change. But this all started with The Learning Leader Show, which to date has more than 400 episodes, millions of downloads, and was called the most dynamic leadership podcast around by Forbes. Ryan's always had a knack for landing big guests like Simon Sinek, Scott Galloway, Ryan Holiday, Kelly McGonigal, and more. And it all stems from a dinner that he had in 2015. I had this dinner set up with Todd Wagner, and Todd Wagner is, is Mark Cuban's uh, business partner. They started Broadcast.com together, and uh, we sat at the bar for a bit and, and had a, a long conversation. As, as you can imagine, I did probably what you would do if you came in this situation, just hammered him with questions, <laughs> just peppered him over and over. And it's funny, you know, I was, I'd, I'd finished my MBA and I considered going back to school because the company reimbursed me for that. And I thought, well, that's a waste of money if I don't use it. And after that dinner with Todd, I'm flying home from it. And I thought, wait a second, why not instead of going back to formal education, what if I created my own form of a leadership PhD program where I get to choose all of the professors and I'll have long form one-on-one conversations. It's really my favorite thing to do, to go deep quickly with another person like you and I have done. And how about I try to do it in public? So in this episode, Ryan and I talk about leaving his full-time sales job to become a creator. We compare our methods of cold outreach. We talk about the interviews that still make us nervous and why his commitment to preparation has helped him stand out above the noise. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at jklaus. Take a screenshot, tag me, and let me know that you're listening. But now, let's talk with Ryan. Jay, first I have to say I'm um, I'm pumped to be here because I'm a fan of you, as you know, and your show. I remember sit, you sitting sitting in the front row of a live show that I did with uh, Jenny Britton Bauer, hanging out and, and paying close attention and asking questions at the end, dude. It was um, it's so good to be here with you. So I would say if you if I go back to that time, this is before podcasts were as big, but there were certainly podcasts. You don't know, listen to Joe Rogan and Bill Simmons of the world. And so I, I recorded 22 episodes prior to launch, and I looked at the algorithms of iTunes. That's what it was called at the time, and and then prepped and, and launched. You know, three a week for those first eight weeks when new and noteworthy was a thing, and and all that, and was able to land up up at the top of that. So really, just a lot went into it. But it started with just following my curiosity, Jay. I would say, and 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 thinking about how I could create my own form of a of a school. And I thought doing it in public was a little scary, but also could potentially be an opportunity for others to learn along with me. And, and that's been, I'd say, the coolest parts about, about it is that it's, you know, as you know, uh, from a community building perspective, it's built this neat community of people who are, who are wanting to be learning leaders as well. Man, it's interesting that you say you recorded 22 episodes before launch, because I just listened to episode 23, where you're talking with your younger brother about the show uh, and why you launched it, yeah. your goals. What, uh, like, what would your ultimate goal be with the podcast? I, um, I set goals, you know, I wrote them down when I started it and, and really I'll, I'll tell you the, the few initial goals. One, I did want to be the number one show on iTunes new and noteworthy. And I knew the biggest way, the quickest way to get to there 
would be to create great content. People only listen to shows if the content's great. So that goal is achieved and it's still still sitting around, uh, hovering around that spot. I also uh, set a goal that I wanted to have 100 people contact me and say that my show has either helped them or inspired them in, in some way to do something. Recording 22 podcast episodes is such a commitment, especially before you get any form of public feedback on it. So one, I want to zoom in a little bit more to how you thought about that commitment and you know how you knew that might pay off or how you, how you're thinking about, well, if this goes really well, we'll hit new and noteworthy. If it doesn't, I'm out 22 episodes worth of time. Like, how are you thinking about that commitment? Well, so I, I as I mentioned, I studied and and read about you know what gave me the best odds of 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 landing there, and in that. You know, I, I kind of even hesitate to share that that was a goal, but it was because I, I wanted the show to grow. I had zero platform. I had no social media following. I had no email list. I had nobody who'd ever heard of me or anything that I had done other than than playing college football, which gave nothing to a podcast. So I, I viewed it as I'm, I'm committed to doing this. And then as I got started recording and I talked to Jason Gaynard and, and our mutual friend, Jason Zook was one of those first ones and a few other really impressive people that were so kind and gracious because they were recording for a podcast that literally didn't exist. There was nowhere to find it. There was no website. There was nothing. And they just still were giving of their time. So I tried to honor that by being overly prepared. And I thought, you know, worst, if it doesn't work out, at least I've had these really, really cool, long form conversations with interesting people who are great storytellers. But quite frankly, Jay, I never intended, like, even if it didn't get picked up or nobody listened, I didn't intend to ever slow down. I was going to keep going, even if nobody listened. I would say the fact, as you know how this feels, when people do start listening and you do start getting feedback and you do see that it's growing, that is some some powerful fuel to keep at it, um, especially when you're, you get the emails that it's impacted you or, or that, that that your show has impacted somebody else. That's that's a really, I think, for me, at least the important um, aspect to it to say, hey, it's, you know, I'm tired or uh, I got a lot going on. Well, you know, your show impacts people. So let, let's try to work hard to prepare to, so that you can continue to do that. And, and that's that's really how I viewed it from the from the beginning. I was going to bring up your guest list because uh, in your first, I think, nine episodes, you had Jordan Harbinger, Pat Flynn, Jason yeah. Sook. Actually, a very similar guest list to who I've had on the show, but way yeah. earlier. Yeah. What did what did that approach look like? How did you get a hold of these people to get them to come on a show? Like you said, that didn't exist. One of the, I think, good things about my first job I had. So I was a... Uh, a new business telephonic sales rep for LexisNexis, sat in a cubicle, smile and dial, low base salary, but uncapped commission. So if you crushed it, you got paid. If you didn't, you got fired. And what that taught me was to deal with rejection. It taught me how to learn some email marketing. It taught me how to write cold emails. It taught me how to make cold calls. It taught me not to sweat it if people ignored you, if people said no, if people told you to stop. So what my process was, I just used kind of everything I learned from that first job and tried to craft compelling cold emails, which were really hard at the beginning because, you know, there's usually some sort of credibility statement within your cold emails. And I didn't have any. Um, my credibility was, I'm curious, I'll be prepared, right? But it wasn't like my show's on Forbes or whatever, or I have a book or anything like that. There's no real credibility. And 
And, and fortunately, though, enough people said yes. I mean, far, far more people either ignored me or said no than said yes. But enough said yes that it kind of kept inspiring me to keep at it and keep emailing and keep finding people. And I still do that to this day. I mean, I still send cold emails multiple times per week in order to, to reach out to find guests on my show, show, even though it's a little bit easier now because I have good relationships with a number of, of PR teams who are, who are hired by, you know, um, uh, authors, leaders, people like that. So yeah, it was really helpful, even though at the time of having that job, I didn't necessarily love every aspect of it, but I, I did learn some necessary skills to, to get a hold of people. I love this. I love when the topic of sales comes up on this show, uh, <laughs> but I want to zoom in specifically into the idea of a good cold pitch, whether it's an email or a phone call, because yeah. I've also seen the power of this. Yeah. And I'd love to hear how you think about your your cold emails to uh, from today or even earlier, whatever you think might be most relevant. All right, I want to hear audience. yours too, though. Are you cool okay. to share yours too? Yeah, okay. Absolutely. Okay. okay. So I think for me, it has to be the one word that I think is really important with an outreach to anybody, whether you're asking them for something or whatever, is specificity. Because you get cold pitched a lot, I'm sure, and and I do I do too. And the the problem is it's co- copy and paste, and they send it to a million people, right? Spray and pray, yep. and you, you you can't do that. So when it, when reaching out cold, it's very specific praise. So if you're reaching out to Adam Grant, don't say I love give and take or I love originals. Actually, point pick a specific story or an aspect about give and take or originals that you really like and tell them that that has changed your life and only if that's true right you can't don't lie so really specific praise is how i would start then if possible and i try to find this um, if at all possible i try to find some sort of uncommon commonality that we share in adam grant's case he went to university of michigan for i believe graduate school at the same time that i played a game in that stadium And so I told him, you may have been at a game that I was able to tumble into the end zone and score, right? So this, that's, that's a a crazy uncommon commonality. I use it as because it, it happens to be true. And then a very specific direct ask after I give some sort of credibility. So specific praise, uncommon commonality, credibility of my show, which by the way, as I mentioned, did not have any at the beginning, but now I do, right? So whether it's some of them are interested in how many people are listening or uh, things you've accomplished, or maybe some write-ups, whatever, some some credibility, right? The, the Cialdini stuff that he writes about in Influence, and then just a direct ask and then get out. And I try to keep it as obviously as like as short as possible so it doesn't clog up their phone, which is where they're probably looking, and then just a direct ask. Um, and you know, I thank them for their consideration, and then I'm done. And, uh, you know, my rate has gone up uh, as we've gone, as I think the credibility portion of the email has gotten better. That has been more helpful, but that's what I try to do. And, you know, I get denied and ignored all the time still, but my hit rate, I think, is a little bit higher now than it was at the beginning. Can you give me like a benchmark? You know, it's funny. I, I've, I've gone like over for like the past couple of weeks, which is funny, is very normal like over 10 probably recently, but that means like back to my selling days, that just means like that's just one step closer to getting a yes. So it's like, just keep going. But for the most part, I'm probably like in the 50, 50 range on a normal time, despite the fact that I'm on a current streak. That's not, not uh, quite that good. But I think that it's also like, I'm reaching out to like Oprah Winfrey and Dave Matthews and these types of people that 
you know, are a little bit harder to, to get to. And usually I just get ignored. And, um, but that's just, that just goes into the not yet column because nobody is ever in the no column, even if they actually say no, just, you know, not yet. And uh, eventually, you know, I plan to, to make those happen. After a quick break, Ryan and I dig into my approach to cold email outreach. And then we dig into his process for preparing for interviews right after this. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. My membership is the core of my business and earning an income directly from your audience is one of the most sustainable ways for you to become a professional creator too. So I want to tell you about today's sponsor, Uscreen. Uscreen is a beautiful all-in-one platform that helps content creators earn a living from their videos by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. You can host private live streams for your members, build an on-demand catalog of premium content, and Uscreen gives you a community hub to interact with your members too. They can access your community from their mobile phone, so your membership is right there in their pocket. With a Uscreen account, you get video hosting, an out-of-the-box website, full payment and subscription management, and plenty of third-party integrations too. And Uscreen makes it easy to get set up. You get access to powerful website themes that are fully brandable with no coding skills required. Uscreen will even provide a dedicated success manager for you. Just about anyone that wants to make money from their content can do it with Uscreen. It's perfect for coaches, authors, influencers, and entrepreneurs in just about any niche. Right now, Uscreen is used by creators in fitness, education, news, kids entertainment, and more. That includes Yoga with Adrian and Creator Now, just to name a couple. Uscreen is the platform for building a video membership site that is great for generating a sustainable income for professional creators. If you create video content for your audience, I highly recommend checking it out. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreen.link slash J. That's U-S-C-R-E-E-N dot link slash J and let them know that I sent you. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several Podcast Movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event, not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com science. That's podcastmovement.com science. Welcome back to my conversation with Ryan Hawk. Just before the break, Ryan and I were talking about our email strategy for reaching out to podcast guests. Ryan shared his strategy with me, which focused on specific praise, uncommon commonality, credibility, and a direct ask. 
What about you though? Can I hear, can you tell me your, I, I know it's your show, but can you tell me <laughs> what, what, what your, you, like how your, your formula for it? Yes. Yeah, so the subject line I put in brackets at the front interview request. And then Ooh. the subject line is usually, can we talk about your creative career? Ah. Then the body of the email, my overall rule is that I want it to be within one scroll of your thumb on a mobile phone, no longer than that. Mm -hmm. So I start also with specificity as far as here's why I'm reaching out to you. And it's usually like some specific relationship I have to their work and why I think it's interesting. And then I go to the direct ask and say, I would love to interview you on creative elements. Would you be open for a 45 minute remote interview for the show? Mm -hmm. And then I have in bold the pitch. And then I literally have like a two line pitch about creative elements saying it's a narrative interview style show that's highly produced and on a network. I had a couple of guests that I've talked to, talked to Seth Godin, James Clear, Vanessa Van Edwards about how they've made a living from their art and creativity. And I'd love to talk to you about the same. Uh, I say it's been featured on Pocket Casts, Stitcher, CastBox, Apple Podcasts. And then I say, if you're interested, I'll send you a scheduling link. Zero pressure or expectation. Thanks for the consideration. Hmm. What's your hit rate? Uh, my hit rate's really high, but my yeah. problem is I don't send enough outbound. Gotcha. And I also, because, because my hit rate has always been historically high, I take the rejections or even just like the ignored responses <laughs> too personally, I'm finding. This is literally my biggest limitation right now is that I'm just not making enough asks. Gotcha. It's not even just the guess. I know I could get to guess I want to get to through other people in my network, but that's yeah. an ask in itself, right? Yeah. I don't love that if at all possible. You know what I mean? I'm, I, I feel like it happens every once in a while, but it's not my favorite part about this where if somebody, cause it's, it's kind of an icky feeling if all of a sudden you have this like great talk with a friend or a totally. buddy and they're like, Hey, by the way, can you get me to Gary V or whatever? And, and you're like, Oh, this doesn't feel as good as it did 30 minutes ago. You know what I mean? Totally. So I'm with you there. I almost would rather just keep pounding my head against the wall, uh, sending cold emails and eventually get them. Then, then, then kind of go through that. But um, I, it's tough though, man, this is the, the, but this is why it's not for everybody. This is why it's hard to consistently produce a high quality show with great people because this is a part of the deal. And I think that's in a way like the heart is what makes it good. I'm, I'm sure we've heard that before in movies and things like that, but I, I agree. I kind of like that aspect of, of putting together a show and, and, and surrounding yourself with these incredible people to be guests on the show because it's really hard. It's also interesting that people I talk to either do a ton of interviews or no interviews. There's like none, uh, nothing in the middle. So yeah. they're either like super critical of the opportunities that are coming now because I've done a ton or they're like, why would I do an interview at all? <laughs> so it's, it's an interesting kind of game there. Do you have, fa do you have favorites of who I've talked to? Yeah. Uh, definitely James episode was a favorite for sure. Yeah, that was, um, a, that was an awesome episode. I listened to that a couple of times actually. It was really good. I really I liked James. Dan Andrews talking with him about community because I think he's yeah. one of like the originals when it comes to building community online. I really enjoyed my conversation with Vanessa Van Edwards too. Jordan Harbinger's conversation was really fun, even though uh, I got so sidetracked talking about relationships that we didn't even talk about his career at all. <laughs> <laughs> really? Um, yeah. But yeah, those are, those are some of my favorites. When, oh, when, you're, cool. when you're doing your outreach, 
do you try to go straight to the person and find like their personal inbox or do you work through the more traditional channel if they're a bigger name? I'd rather go straight to them if if at all possible I'm going I'm trying but sometimes you know you look them up and you see that they're represented by somebody else and then I'll, I'll go that route too. It's just a series of looking for that's a big part of it because a lot of questions you get like in the Q and A of a, of a keynote they're like well how do you find them how do you reach out to them how do you decide and it's always about just trying to find a way to get in touch with them and then I know you didn't ask this question but I think that the answer the how do you decide who? I really think a good guest, and I, I probably should have asked you this before we even started recording, but a good guest to me are the ones who, for my show at least, sustained excellence. They understand why, which is should never be assumed that people you have, have an understanding of why they've been good at something and they're a good storyteller. So they can they can bring those things and bring it to life. That's what I think great audio is, is like a high level of self-awareness and great storytelling. And then hopefully some practical application like if you can hit all those that's good and not every person even if they're highly accomplished not every person can do that so i think that's what that's what i'm really looking for and then i'm trying to go directly to them as much as possible it's not always that way but but i try to if i can how do you prepare for your interviews typically so if they write, have written books i'll i'll do my best to to read either the entire books or some cases i've already have and i'm going to reach out to them after the fact Anything online I could find, I'll try to read as much as possible. Obviously, anything on YouTube I'm looking for. And one of, I think, the, the things I started doing about a year and a half ago is now that I've built up you know, a, a, a solid group of people that I've talked to, I will look for people that we have in common that may be either friends or acquaintances, and I'll reach out to them. And I, I have one question, and that is, what is something about them that I can't find on the internet? And that doesn't always work, but it can lead to some awesome questions. Like Shane Snow told me, ask Ozan Veral why he gets his movies from Netflix as DVDs instead of streaming because it's really weird and nobody does that. So I, I did towards the end of the conversation and it led to this great dialogue about delayed gratification. And like we got into this big wow. rabbit hole of that. I said, Shane, send me something about Ozan that I cannot find on the internet because he knows my prep process is to scour and watch and read everything there is about my guest. And he said, ask him, why does he still watch DVDs instead of Netflix? <laughs> so I, I did not I, find I, online. I did not yeah, find yeah, online. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I still get DVDs in the mail. Uh, really? Yes, I still do. I might be the only does person. Does Netflix in still do does. that? Yeah, Netflix still does that. They do. They still, they still send DVDs in the mail. Okay. And here's why I do it. There's something about delaying gratification that brings people happiness. So if I'm just, you know, if my wife and I are just sitting on the couch and like we can pick whatever movie, we sometimes do that, by the way. But I find such strange pleasure in like finding a movie adding it to my Netflix queue and then waiting for like two days for the movie to arrive. <laughs> and then like seeing that like red envelope sitting in our mailbox, honestly, it's sometimes more joyous than the movie itself. That anticipation of like the, the very like purposeful way of like, I'm going to watch this movie. I'm going to put it on my queue. It's going to arrive in my mailbox. I'm going to open it like a Christmas present and then put it in. I just get, I know it's strange, but I get so much satisfaction from it. 
And so that's a question I like to ask from a different point of view, from a research perspective. And I would say one other thing, Jay, that I do that I think is, I don't know, novel to some is if they've written a book, I always go to the acknowledgement section first and I look for somebody that they love. And I want to bring up a person they love, usually towards the beginning of the conversation so that, especially if I'm with somebody who is interviewed a lot, I want this to feel different. I want this to feel personal. I want to start with them thinking like, oh, I love my wife or I love my husband or I love my mom and dad or my kids or this this special coach that I had, like I had Admiral McRaven on and I looked up in, in his books and stuff and I was like, what's something that I could start with love instead of, you know, this is a guy who led the Bin Laden raid and all this crazy military stuff. Awesome, awesome uh, Admiral. And Instead, I started with, um, he wrote about how much he loved his his high school football coach and uh, high school football and track. And I just brought up his name and we talked about that. And the whole tone, like the look on his face just changed dramatically from this. You know, he's a super nice guy, but he's also a big time military guy. And it, and it just like shifted the, I think the, 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 the like, oh, this is going to be a different type of a conversation. And he had a big smile and he was speaking from a place of love. And I think it set the tone for the rest of the conversation where he was very open. And I think if you start with love, you're more apt to continue to open up as you go. And that's how you get to the good stuff, as opposed to being like, why did you write this book? What's the book about? What are you most, you know, like those types of things are what they are used to, as opposed to saying, well, tell me about Mr. Jones from seventh grade, you said he impacted you. Whoa, wait, huh? How do you know about, oh, because you put him in your acknowledgements. Oh, okay. You know, and it starts a little bit differently in that regard. And I love, I love doing that when at all possible. And that's a big part of my, my research now. That's so good. I, I think about the, the word host, you know, we're podcast hosts. And what does it mean to be a good host? That's also a goal of mine is I want people leaving the show thinking that was different. That was comfortable. Mm -hmm. I felt like I was hosted. You know, it's if you invited somebody over to your house for dinner, you'd want them leaving saying, man, I'm glad I went there. I hope he invites me again someday. Not, mm -hmm. well, that was uncomfortable, you know, or that was awkward. I think host is something we, we don't appreciate enough as, as huh. a role. And I like that. Uh, not to cut you off, but I want to ask you, I feel like you have such a calming presence on people and you have this kind of wel welcoming voice. I also feel like when I listen to your show, you, you are really good at being on the same level. So like you're talking to Seth Godin and most people put Seth on a level like seven levels ahead of them. And when I listen to you talk to him or even James, even though James is like, like our friend, but you know, he's still now James Clear selling 5 million books or whatever. But I hear you talk to a Seth Godin and it feels to me like you guys are buddies. You're on the exact same level. Like where, how do you, how do you manage that? It's something I think about too. How do you manage that as the host of a show of not being of like putting yourself below somebody else because you admire them so much and their work has impacted you in such a such a big way over the years because I because I, I feel like it's a huge skill of yours and probably a big reason that why your show is the way it is and why it's grown so much so fast. You've opened a little bit of a can of worms. I'll try to not make this <laughs> too long, but there are two stories here and then a real quick like okay, overarching sorry. thing. No, no, no. It's 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 good and uh, it's good to articulate some of this. The yeah. first thing is I, I have a deep appreciation of inflection. I think that the way you speak 
has an impact on the way it's heard. And so I, I very much do try to have things be at a calm level because you can deliver an intense question calmly and it's inviting and not intrusive, right? Mm-hmm. As far as being able to talk to people, when I was in college, I thought I was going to be a sports journalist and I covered the Ohio State football team as like a freshman and then my first quarter of my sophomore year. And the first couple of times that I went to the media room, I was starstruck talking <laughs> to, to, to some of these guys. Um, and this was like Andrew Sweat at the time. It was Luke Fickle's year and it was just a weird year. Uh, oh, I, was, yeah. I was calling Terrell Pryor's lawyer asking like, hey, how's why is Terrell Pryor driving a Nissan 350Z around campus? And he was just like, <laughs> I'm not going to talk about that. Uh, but what you learn pretty quickly is like people are just people and you got to talk to them like people. And the last story I'll tell is briefly, I was doing a lot of coaching and in the coaching world, people need to put you on a pedestal for your words to be effective. But like, it's uncomfortable when someone is talking to you, talking up to you when you are trying to be on their level. And so I, I think about that from the other side too. Like, it, it it may be flattering to some degree to talk about how much someone's work has impacted you and changed you, but it's uncomfortable to the person receiving it a lot of times because yeah. they just want to relate to you. So you, yeah. if you meet them there, usually they're pretty open to it, I think. I think it's a, that's a really good point, as well as I found when you talk about people like with some of the, the, the things that you can relate to. So, for example, if people have kids, in my case, and you talk about like, well, how did how how was getting ready for school this morning? Immediately, you're on the same level because it's usually for for those we're like, oh, they're six to thirteen, which is kind of the area that I'm in. Okay, it was a disaster. Yeah, it was it was a it was a train wreck. And you're like, okay, we're in the same spot here. We're we're just two guys trying to keep it together. And I love that that story too from the Ohio State locker room. I think that's um that's really helpful to think of. People and just the fact that yeah, people are people. We all have our flaws. We're all really messy. The world's really gray, and it's. I think it's more enjoyable to talk to somebody like I think treating the person who who comes and picks up the trash can versus versus the person who is the the owner and CEO of the company. There is no reason not to talk to them the exact same way. I think about this on Thursday nights here when I take out the trash too. Like yeah, everyone takes out the trash. Yeah, (laughs) like there's a great commonality between everybody, no matter where you're at. Exactly right. When we come back, Ryan and I talk about how he prioritizes the new projects he decides to take on. And a little bit later, we talk about when he knew it was time to leave his job and focus on the learning leader full time. So stick around and we'll be right back. Hey, welcome back. On this show, believe it or not, I still get nervous before a lot of my interviews. Ryan has recorded more than 400 episodes of the learning leader show. And so I asked him if there's anything that still gets him nervous before interviews. I would say some of it is if there was a lot of time prior to like the first ask to when they eventually said yes. So a great example is 216 of mine, episode 216. It's Jim Collins. And I started emailing Jim before I had a podcast. So as I was trying to book those first, you know, 20 some uh, recordings, and and got no response no response no response and eventually i don't remember exactly when like maybe at a hundred i started getting responses and then i started getting phone calls from his team saying hey you know what do you think and eventually after years of emails and multiple phone calls he eventually says yes and and i was really nervous 
going into it and even i don't know if you ever had this maybe more at the beginning because i don't have as much anymore but at the beginning where you kind of secretly hope they cancel you ever have that feeling where you're like oh yeah i, I love i love when things get canceled generally <laughs> but like in your podcast though you yeah. don't like i'm with you because i'm like oh i got free free time now to like do creative work i'm with you on that but like sometimes my podcast at the beginning i would hope they would cancel because i was so nervous and then and then i remember when he joined i think i did that one on skype when he joined the skype on 216 he approached me with such curiosity and asking about me. It made me feel so much better and also made me feel like, wow, this dude is just, he's the best. <laughs> and so it, it put me at such ease. I've always though felt the best way for me to be free flowing and loose and agile in the moment is just to be overly prepared. And so I have like my call sheet uh, as like a football coach and I have my outline. It's all up there and it's ready to go. And that kind of doing all of that pre-work, even if I never look at it, it makes me feel like I got it if I need it. So then in a way I can just let it go and I can be a deep listener and ask better follow-up questions than initial questions. Cause as you know, that's where you get to the good stuff. And so, so for me, it's just being an over-preparer and maybe that's from my sports background where I, I, I played my best games as a quarterback where I was overly prepared and I played bad games when I wasn't properly prepared. And I feel like the actual physical pain of that. And I've kind of taken that into the world of what I do now. It's that just this, this, just to be over-prepared so that I can just let it go once, once we hit record. And, and I, th I feel like that, that seems to be part of kind of how I have to go about it. Man, I want to over-prepare to the degree that I can tell you do. I listened to your conversation with Ryan Holiday, your most recent one, and the level of depth you can speak to his books. I was just like, oh my gosh, this guy has <laughs> done his homework. Yeah. How do you manage your time? How much, how do you know when you've prepared enough? How do you know that you should keep preparing for this interview versus the next one coming up? Like you could prepare endlessly. I never feel like it's enough ever. I feel like I'm always, I never had that sense of like, I'm ready to go. I feel like I'm always just kind of getting ready. But as we hit record, I'm like, do I have enough? Am I prepared enough? And it's usually I don't feel like I am. And I'm, it, it's, it's, it, and Jim Collins talks about this in Great by Choice, but it's just that this productive paranoia. And I think it's, it's part of my process is that I'm almost always productively paranoid. I have a keynote speech and I've done the speech a million times and I practice a lot. I'm still like, I don't know if I know it enough. And then you get up there and you just go. And the same thing with that. So I never really fully know if I'm ready. I am a big outliner. I, I take a ton of notes uh, leading up to it. I don't really script questions. I just have a series of kind of points and sometimes like quotes from their books that I want to expand on that. And maybe I'll, I will, I will pull that and, and read that, but I never really feel like it as far as the time it's, it's just a constant state of getting ready for the next one. So I'm reading and I, you know, I can take all the notes on my phone, on my computer, on anything that I have around me so that I can jot down an idea or maybe a parallel, or I've recognized a pattern and maybe I'm going to, I'm going to jot that down and, and just the act of, of putting it down on the page kind of then gets it into my mind where I may not even need to see it in my notes, but I've done the work to write it down or to type it out. And then it helps me be more ready to go uh, and just let it, like I said, let it, let it flow as we're talking and make it not this formal Q and a interview, but more of a conversation where, cause I think conversations are packed full of follow-up questions that, you don't know what they're going to be going into the conversation because you don't know what their answer is going to be. And so in order to be good at that, you just got to be a deep listener and, and, and try to figure like, what's the thread I'm going to pull on here? 
And that seems to, uh, the repetition at doing that seems to, to be helpful too. As you keep doing more and more and more, you just get a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. And, and then, you know, these, these, these episodes become the result. Well, the learning leader brand and the things that you've created have continued to grow, right? You have the book now, which we'll talk about in a little bit. You have a course on Himalaya learning. You have your newsletter you put out. So all those things take time. How do you know when it's appropriate to put more time into researching for your interview versus <sighs> do the next thing or start building the next part of your empire? It's a great, great question, man. I don't know if I have a great answer other than I know what the main thing is. And the main, the home base, the foundation of everything is my podcast. Everything that I've gotten to do is because of that. And so I will never, that will never not be my top priority, at least in my creative life right now and, and moving forward. So we've heard of keeping the main thing, the main thing that will always be number one in my work life because everything else you just mentioned has come because of that. So if I mess that up, in my opinion, there's a chance everything else falls apart. Now you get into books and that's a whole different audience. There's a number of people who don't even know I have a podcast, but email because you have a book because books are different, right? People take your course, but usually those come from the show. People are on that. I email every Monday morning that even though I put my podcast in that every single time, they've still never listened. They just like to read the email. Hey, great, I guess. But still, for the most part, that is the, the, the critical, I think, foundation for everything to have been built off of. And that's not how I planned it. It's just it's the first kind of creative thing I did outside of my day job because I started it, you know, when I had a full time job and did it like that for three and a half years on the side, that's the foundation for everything. So I'll always lean, if I'm in doubt, I will lean more towards the podcast and getting pr prepared for the next one. Cause if I mess that up, there's a chance it could, it could have a domino effect on everything else. And by the way, Jay, it's my favorite thing to do by far my favorite thing to do. So that's nice. If there's an, if there's alignment there, it's my favorite thing to prepare and then have these long form conversations with one person at a time. So it's in a way that's, it's nice that those, those line up. How many interviews or how many recorded conversations do you typically have in the can at any given time? How are you doing per week? It depends on the week and the travel, but there are some weeks I'll do as many as four. Maybe I release one a week. So yeah, I've, I've done weeks like that and I've had weeks where I've done none because of, of, of travel or other work. So it just depends on the week. Obviously when you do four in a week, that basically takes up almost all the time because there's still a ton of prep and sometimes you're preparing for multiple at the same time and that can be confusing, but I'd prefer it. Like if, if I had like the perfect schedule where I don't have to worry about anything else, I would probably do like one max two a week, every week. But with the schedule and I have to get sometimes get ahead of it if I'm going to be you know out of town or doing other types of things, I do have to not batch, but I do have to get ahead of it a bit so that I can stay consistent because one of the things I have stayed with the entire time is releasing an episode every Sunday night at seven o'clock because I've learned, and again, I stumbled into this too. I didn't plan this. I learned that becoming part of people's routines is a good thing. So the emails, I do the dishes every Sunday night after dinner. I mow the grass on Monday. I uh, commute to work on Monday. I, you know, work out. And I love listening to it on the Monday morning workout, like that type of thing. 
you hear enough of that you're like oh this consistency thing with their routine is is important and so in a way i've tried to make sure that i i publish every sunday at seven and the people you talk to i imagine you had to book them probably yeah. months in advance so you know i think about your pipeline and you you got to be ahead because the, the guests that you really want to talk with might not be available for months yeah and then you also as you know have a lot of reschedules too so the combination of you just you, you kind of always have to have more than you need in order to make sure you stay ahead of it. So I always have plenty in reserves and ready to go. As often happens when Ryan and I get together, we got sucked into the nitty gritty of his podcasting techniques and glossed over an important part of his origin story. So I took a step back and I asked Ryan at what point he felt comfortable quitting his job and making this podcast that he was doing on the side his full-time focus probably just a little bit before I did it. Not a lot. I never, cause I never had a goal or an intention to leave my job. This was a side project where I could be creative, where I could learn in public, where I could, as, as it got going, build, build a bit of a community. What happened though, was I started getting requests to do other things that would pay me money. So give speeches, consult with leadership teams, that type of work. And I was starting to have to take vacation days from my job. And then I would go and give a talk somewhere and some, maybe there'd be pictures on social media or it would start popping up. And it, it wasn't a huge issue, but it started to become one with people within where I was working. Most people loved it. In fact, they were like, this is really cool. But you know, there are a few people <laughs> above me that didn't necessarily love it and said, this is kind of becoming a distraction. And I thought, wouldn't you want all of your leaders to be out there trying to be better leaders and studying from the most excellent leaders in the world? Like, I think that's an awesome thing. How could that, how could that possibly, as long as, you know, my team was hitting our numbers, like we were, we were doing a good job. If, if our performance was bad, I get it, but our performance was good. And then your leader of, of the team is out there in the world trying to learn from other leaders. I don't see that being a negative. But not everybody felt that way. And so at that point, you're thinking, wait a second, I may be in a point where I have to choose here. And I'm not saying it ever got to that point where I was forced to choose, but I could see that it may get to that point. And instead, I just chose for anybody else and said, I'm going to I'm going to leave my corporate job and I'm going to do this full time. And yes, obviously, it was risky. And you walk away from these these fat salaries that you get as you move up the chain of a big corporation. But my thought process always was like, I don't know, I feel like I would have regret not doing that as opposed to the opposite. So, and also I, I'm pretty common. I know you feel this way too. You could probably always go get a job. It might not be the same job. It might not yeah. be the same money, but you could probably go get a job if you need to. But this other thing over here, if you stop doing that, that would, I think it'd just be a disaster. Like it's your, it's your love. It's the thing that you, you go to bed thinking about and wake up thinking about, I feel like you got to go give it a shot, especially if you've gotten some signals from the market that they're saying, we want this, you could potentially monetize this in a way. And that, that fortunately is what I, I did three and a half years ago. And now it's, um, we're in a, we're in a good spot. It's just become such a, such a different experience of the world too. You know, I think all the time oh. about this, this idea, our, our brains are very mathematical and we always know what there is to lose. So we can calculate like, well, if I leave my job, I'm saying goodbye to this salary, but you have no idea everything that's possible. So you can't properly weigh that risk 
against like, but if this happens, then this, it could be any number of things. So we tend to think that there's a huge loss because we can't quite understand the possible gain by making a big move like this. And I try to remind myself of that too, because it's really easy to get caught up in the things that I might be giving up. I try to think about, and some of these questions are cheesy, but I think that it's still worth it to, to ask them. So a few things I'm really inspired by, by being a dad. And I think it is a, it is a really cool story to tell that I like the job that I have or the work that I do did not exist. Right. And so the, to be able to look your daughter in the eye and say, you literally could do whatever you want. Now you got to work at it and you got to be disciplined and consistent and you got to stick to it, but you literally, and, and it's a different thing to say that and do that. So a lot of parents say that, but but to actually do that is a whole nother level for a kid. They're like, no, my dad is actually doing that, which then gives this whole sense of like this anything is possible type mindset for them. And as you could tell in the, the tone of my voice, how excited I get thinking about inspiring the most important people in your life. I mean, that's everything to me. So to think that I would have a shot to be able to live that story out for them is is everything and to me it's like you can't you got to go for that stuff if you have a shot like if you've built something up to, to to give yourself a chance it's too it's just too cool to pass up that opportunity to go and do it not that it's not really scary and you're not kind of worried and you don't have these like really high fixed costs when you're responsible for the lives of other people like all of that is there and i think about it constantly but i also think about like you, you're doing something to show them that they literally could follow some sort of weird creative passion that they may have that we don't even, we can't even predict. It could be possible. And so I think about that a lot too, Jay. And I think it's really important for, for people to think about kind of like modeling behavior that you want your kids, if you do have kids to see. And it, it inspires, you know, the, the, my friends and my wife and my close family too, to say, wow, like, really? Do you really, you walk away? are you sure? You know? And I think like, that's kind of, but then they're like, but I got you, you know, I believe in you. I support you. And I love, I love getting a chance to prove those people right too. I am just in awe of parents who do this type of thing. <laughs> I have no idea how you manage. Are you guys going to think about this soon or what? Oh yeah. Well, of course, of course, of course it's yeah, on the yeah. horizon. And I think about yeah. my life right now and it's like, okay. And, and where do I put dad time in this? What have you learned about managing your time across the growing business, uh, being a dad, being a husband. So um, I think the good thing about our work and the tough thing is that um, we do have a lot of flexibility. But so, you know, when your kids sleep, you know, I, I tend to, to work a decent amount when they sleep. I'm an early riser, so I can get things done when my wife is sleeping, my kids are sleeping. So I think like you just figure things out, you know, like I, I just kind of innately within you, I feel like to figure things out, especially when it comes to being a dad or a mom, I'm sure. And, and so for me, it all, it certainly starts with my partner. And so if, if Miranda, my wife wasn't world-class at pretty much everything, none of this would happen. It is critical that that, that, that person in your life is right. And for me, that is just a massive stroke of luck to have that. Cause I don't think this stuff happens without a partner like that. And, and, and also who's just rooting so hard for you to do well and cares so much about you being fulfilled and happy and doing something that you love, because I think it would have been very normal of her to say, 
you're going to cut your income in more than half to go do maybe more than that. That's crazy town. You, we cannot do that. And she was like, I'm confident you'll make it up in a few years and we'll be fine. We'll be fine. And she's right. And so I, I, I think that's another critical part. I know you're kind of right there. You're, you're newly engaged and getting ready to get married. And I've seen how, how cool the relationship you guys have. That I think is just everything, man. That's where it starts. Man, well, I didn't save enough time to talk about the book, unfortunately, but I wanted to acknowledge that uh, you released this book and it seems like every goal you've kind of set in front of yourself, you seem to be achieving from getting Jim Collins on the podcast 200 episodes later and publishing the book and making a full-time go of this. You have a course on Himalaya now. How are you thinking about the future of Learning Leader and what are your next sets of goals? I'm going to keep writing. Writing is one of the hardest challenges for me. So uh, earning a book deal was a big deal to me. Uh, McGraw-Hill uh, was my is, is my publisher. I've got the second one in the works that should hopefully come out in about uh, eight months. I've turned in the manuscript for the second one through through the same publisher, same editor, um, working with the exact same team. Um, book number two was number one. So that's a big deal to me because I think it's the hardest thing for me to do well. And I like the thought of that challenge. So I'll continue doing that. I'll continue doing the show. You know, one of the neat things about being a, a building a platform and being a content creator, Jay, as you know, is um, it can open some eyes. So there's been some really cool opportunities brought to me recently that uh, for me to partner with some amazing people that's, you know, those conversations are happening as we speak. And I think companies now who don't currently have like a strong sense of creating content or having uh, brand partnerships. I think that's changing. I think that's going to continue to happen as we move forward. And you see that the Rogan deal with Spotify and other deals that Dan Levitard and Bill Simmons and all these people are making. That's that's good news for you and me, man. So that type of stuff is is in the works too. So I don't know, man. It's pretty cool. I, as for from something that you just do out of your own curiosity that you're trying to to follow that. And work hard at it to 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 lead to get into the ears of some some people that can uh, potentially change your life. That's pretty neat, man. So I'm just I'm just excited. I'm very grateful, very grateful for the fact that people decide to listen and that they care enough to say, hey, let's can we can we do something beyond just your show uh, together? And and that leads to who knows what. And it's uh, it's pretty neat, man. Could never have envisioned this even like four years ago. Five like you have to write a five year plan. Have you ever had to do that, or they ask you that? Yeah, and you're like. <laughs> Okay, and you map it out and you look at it and like, well, nope, 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 nope. It's like, it's just really hard to do that for me. If I would have wrote that plan, like none of this stuff would be on yeah. it. So it's pretty, it's pretty wild, man. And in this world, any one thing that happens can completely change the exactly. direction you're heading. Oh, exactly, man. It's just really hard to predict. So that's why it's like, you know, head down, focus on doing excellent work each day. And who knows, you know, uh, who knows what could happen then. As I'm sure you could tell from this interview, Ryan is one of my favorite people to talk to. He's thoughtful, incredibly kind, and he's an open book. It's easy to look at someone like Ryan and be intimidated by everything he's accomplished through his career, the podcast, his book, being a keynote speaker, but he does an incredible job breaking down what he's doing, how he's doing it, and making things seem both relatable and attainable. If you wanna learn more about Ryan, you can subscribe to The Learning Leader Show here in your podcast player or visit learningleader.com. Links to both are in the show notes. Thanks to Ryan for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Nathan Todd Hunter for mixing the show and to Brian Skeel for creating our music. 
If you like this episode, you can tweet at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.